Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertia Morgana by P.D. Espensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 10 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Welcome, Sue and Pete. Hello. Hi, Alice. So, Chapter 10. Chapter 10... Getting, we're getting to, well, not quite the halfway point, but uh, we're, we're certainly getting into some more interesting things in this chapter, albeit that we do get a bit of repetition. So what I'd like to do is start at the beginning and where we've already covered things and he's repeating himself, I, I'd like to maybe just mention them, clear up anything that might still be uh, something to discuss, but let's not dwell on that and then get through to the the parts that are new the concepts that he's bringing in that are new and take him to task on those things in this chapter so let's start at the beginning the first sentence now on the basis of those conclusions already made let us seek to define how we may discover the real four-dimensional world obscured for by uh, for us by the illusory three-dimensional world so this chapter we are starting to get into how do we see the four-dimensional world if we are living in, in an illusory three-dimensional world created by ourselves. So he says, see, and inverted commas, it may be by two methods, either by sensing it directly, by developing the space sense and other higher faculties, which will be discussed later. And I'm, I must say, I'm not sure that they are actually really discussed in this chapter, so he must mean later in the book. Or by understanding it mentally by a perception of its possible possibilities through the exercise of reason. All right, so he then goes on to looking at what is the fourth dimension of space. And we have already covered this, and so has he, and, he, and he's reiterating. He says, uh, by abstracting reason, we have already come to the conclusions that the fourth dimension of space must lie in time, i.e. that time is the fourth dimension of space. Now, I'm happy to accept that. And I, I'm not. I'm not. That's why I'm putting my hand up. I, as far as people listening to this uh, are concerned, I want to state my case here. While you two might be happy to accept that, I'm absolutely not. He hasn't established this, and he, when he says we... He needn't speak for me or for millions upon millions of other people living on this planet right now. And when he and when he put, I don't know what your um, copy is like, when he says fourth dimension of space must lie in time, must is in italics, really stressing it. Not a, no, no way has he established that it must lie there at all by any scientific format whatsoever um, has he done that. And and. My understanding and experience of extra-dimensional uh, experience, and by the way, matched by millions and millions of others, far more revered than him, is is that the fourth dimension doesn't have to be time at all. So anyway, I just wanted to put that in there. That I don't agree with him. There, he hasn't established that for me, and he hasn't established it for millions and millions of people who don't just read books who actually practice this. 
um, extrasensory and and otherworldly experience. So, so know, Pete, where do you think the fourth dimension is? The fourth dimension is mostly accepted as thoughted ideas, memory, these these non-sensory experiences that we have, dreams too. Because interestingly enough, later on in the book, he does come up to thought and he puts that in, into a higher dimension again. Yeah, and nobody else does. So, you know, nobody, nobody else does. And when he met with Gurdjieff, he would have known differently. I still think it's a valuable concept to have a look at. Well, we can sit and have a look at that um, all we want. My, my point was that I'm just saying that when he is absolutely certain that he's established it and that it's a conclusion and he's come to it by reason, um, uh, no, not at all. He hasn't established it at all. So that, that's, that's my point. And I just, all I wanted to say was when he says we, he's not speaking for everybody. That's hypnotic language from somebody that's not absolutely certain that he's got it right. We'll, we'll carry on. But I just want to, I don't want to, see, I didn't want this to be a big thing. I just wanted to put my point out that I don't agree with him. He hasn't done it. And we can, so that we can move on to the other bits that you want to talk about. Because we've been around in circles like this all the time. Fair enough. But I think from my point of view, time being a space sense in a higher dimension, that, that makes sense to me. It doesn't necessarily make it the fourth. It doesn't make it the fourth and it doesn't make it the adjunct to what we experience right now. But whether we call it a lineal fourth or fifth or sixth, does it actually have to all fit into a in a linear line? Is it does it I'm not uh, look, I'm not the one that's using fourth dimension as a as as a frontispiece here. He is. He's the one that's yes. calling it the fourth dimension. But what I'm saying is he so, says if he says fifth that thought is possibly a fifth or a sixth dimensional thing and and yeah, other people are saying it's the fourth. How do you we have the experience so that we can experience it. And then we don't put labels on it. Once you start experiencing things outside of three dimensions, you, you understand straight away. One of the first things you understand is the labels become meaningless. They're, they're meaningful to him, but they're not meaning, meaningful to us. So that's how we do it. We have experience. We don't read books. We have experience. That's how. I think uh, that is a reasonable point. It doesn't matter. It, in my point of view, that it's call it the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. It's a higher dimension. It's a dimension that we don't see with our five senses. Whether whether it's the fourth, the next one, the, uh, or, or the fifth or the sixth, to me is irrelevant. I think his point about the way we see time is uh, is interesting from the point of view that he's talking about. We see things having a start, a beginning, and an end in this dimension, and that possibly they all exist at the same time in another dimension. I like that concept, and that's how he's, in, in, from where I'm coming from, that's how he relates it to time. I, Using, can, I can go with that. So I think the thing is, for, for to, to move forward with what he's saying and to get to the bits that I think are very interesting in this chapter, can we accept that time lies in this dimension as an illusion of our senses and that it may not be something that is looked upon as time in a higher dimension. Well, it makes sense to me. I'll just, yeah, we'll just move forward. Let's, let's, let's go on to the next bits. Okay, so you don't think time, Pete, is actually something that's, um, that is illusory, like he's saying? Yeah, I do. I, I think that time is an illusion. Yes, I do. Okay, so we can agree that time is an illusion and this is um, whether it's, it comes from another dimension we label the fourth, fifth, we don't care, that it's just 
out of this dimension. All right, so let's move on. So his next point that I think he's making is, he says, we perceive this world based on our level of consciousness. How we perceive the world is through our senses, and so it's the interpretation of our consciousness of what's coming back from our senses. And this is, again, a little bit of a recap. He says, in other words, every being feels as space that which is grasped by his space sense. The rest he refers to as time. And he's saying, and he's said this many times, that time is an imperfect space sense. He then goes on and he says, in, in capital letters, in my version, the sense of space, space sense, is the power of representation by means of form. I've got exactly that. What does that actually mean? That was, that was my next question. question. Yeah, because I've got a question mark by that. <laughs> <laughs> I the same question mark. <laughs> what on earth does he mean? So let me, let me... <laughs> Let me read the um, paragraph before very quickly so yeah, maybe there's please, some, some please, context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he says, in other words, every being feels a space, that which is grasped by his space sense. The rest he refers to time, i.e. the imperfectly felt is referred to time. Or it is possible to formulate the matter thus. Every being feels a space, that which by the aid of his space sense he is able to represent to himself in form outside of himself, and that which he is not able thus to represent he feels as time, i.e. eternally moving, impermanent or unstable, but is impossible to imagine in terms of form. And then the sentence. The sense of space, space sense, is the power of representation by means of form. I've got a better idea of it now. Do tell. Share. Oh, you want <laughs> yes, to share. <laughs> Yes. Would you mind? Would you mind? It's actually. It. I think it's actually quite simple. What. What. It's. It's. Um. It's a nice condensation of of something that he's been explaining all all along. This idea that we only have this representation of space because of the way that we perceive everything around us by one or more of our five ordinary. Senses, the you know, sight, smell, touch, and feeling, and so on. So, for example, we can have a sense of distance and a sense of perspective from how we hear things. We can hear something getting closer, and the Doppler effect makes that quite clear. You know, that the sound changes as it's going coming to us and then going past us. We see parallax error in vision and so on, when we touch something, it might feel solid or it might feel liquid, or we might see something and our hand goes straight through it and immediately we think of it as fog or or some kind of gas or something. We're representing, in other words, we're only representing our experience in terms of form, things that appear in, in ways that our five senses can actually have an experience of. I think that so our space sense is the experience that we have with one or more of our five senses. That's what I think he's referring to. As that makes sense. I think you're right. That makes sense. So, in in other words, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm right. It's the only way that I <laughs> got it. Like that analogy he made before of the blind man with his stick. So you know, whatever the Ooh. stick feels. That's his space sense, you know. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's it. his space sense. So, okay, so 
Well, look, I, I think that's a reasonable reasonable point to make that, you know, that, that's what illusion is. Illusion is uh, only being able to uh, experience something based on the senses that you've got. It doesn't actually mean that that's what it is. It's, it's, um, it's what, what you are perceiving it as. A blind man would perceive the world differently to the way I perceive it. Yeah, because his visual sense doesn't give him as big a circle as you have. You know, you can see the horizon, and the blind man can only feel as far as his stick will go. Exactly. So, so it's it's yeah. So it's what we see in form, or what we not see with the word through your eyes, but what we experience the world of form is the world we are. Uh, that's 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 our sense of space. So okay. So well, let's. I, I, I think we you... found something that we all agree on, even me. Gee, yippee ki yay. <laughs> Okay, so Pete. I'm going to open a bottle of champagne now. I know. I'm just going to sit here and savor that moment for a moment. <laughs> okay, all, 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 those, all those jollies aside, uh, I think. I think. Okay, so he's building. He's building. He always builds, and so that's. Let's take that as one little block that he's building for this chapter. He then says, and I, I like his. Analogy of the cinematograph. I know he's used it before. He's probably flogged it to death, even. But I really like it. And he says, "Yeah, he, how he's he's now looking at how well, he's calling the world the infinite sphere." So he's talking about he's now changed to me. He's changed, uh, uh, thrown in a new definition uh, of the infinite sphere, meaning the universe. But he's liking it to the cinematograph. And I'm going to read the quote so that uh, we were all on the same page. He says, the infinite sphere, and he does italicize, not italicize, he does uh, put that in quotes, so it's, it looks like he's making that uh, meaning up. Uh, the infinite sphere by which we represent the universe to ourselves is constantly and continuously changing. In every consecutive moment, it is not that which it was before. A constant change of pictures, images, relations is going on therein. It is for us as if it were a screen of a cinematograph upon which the swiftly running images of pictures appear and disappear. But where are the pictures themselves? Where is the light throwing the image upon the screen? Whence do the pictures come and where do they go? Now, the reason I like this is because he's, he's I think he's almost bringing in, when he brings this in much later, the analogy of the cave by Plato. So he brings in Plato. It's it's almost like that uh, analogy of Plato's cave where we see the shadows and the the light is shining behind. So it's it's, it's analogous to that. So he's really saying, well, just because we see the pictures on the screen, that doesn't tell us where they're coming from. He then goes on to say, uh, if the infinite sphere is the screen of the cinematograph, so the world, we, our universe is the screen of the cinematograph, so our consciousness is the light penetrating through our psyche, um, i.e. through the stories of our impressions, the pictures, it, the light, throws upon the screen their images, which we call life. But where do the impressions come to us from? And then this is the interesting thing he's saying. They come from the same screen. So I think his analogy is saying that we look at the screen and we think it's life, like the, all these things that we see in front of us, that the, the world of form we look at as, as our life, as, as life, and we perceive it through our psyche, our senses, and I think that's what he means by psyche. 
but we are actually creating on the screen the uh, the impressions come to us from the screen and we interpret them from the screen but that's nothing to do with the source of where they're actually coming from that's what i think he's saying but i'm going to leave it to you guys to to comment when he describes psyche he talks about the stores of our impressions which i think he means memory well what else would be the store of your impressions if you have yeah that's true you, you know, you that's don't true. have a store of something that you've never seen or experienced. Well, I think, Alice, we had him throw the word psyche in just loosely a few chapters ago, and we really wondered what he meant by that. And I interpret this section here to say that um, it is the interaction of consciousness on our memory that he is saying is our psyche. It's not just our memory. I think it's the interaction of consciousness upon it. Now, I don't know how you have a memory without consciousness, so that's another... Hard to say. <laughs> another point, I mean, is, is that... But I think that's what he's saying. And then as because we have consciousness and impressions, that's what we call life force. I think it's, it's something that Aspensky discusses a few times in this chapter. I don't know if it's... The, if, I don't know if it's the motion of the fourth dimension and the fifth that is life. I mean, that's his, his paraphrasing. But I, I think I'm happy to say it's certainly beyond this dimension. I, I think he's getting at something here. I haven't quite grasped it. So where he says, but where do these impressions come from? And then in italics he goes, from the same screen. And yeah, here I've got in a question dwell, mark there. Yeah, yeah. So the next sentence says, and herein dwells the most incomprehensible mystery of life as we see it. We are creating it and we are receiving everything from it. And that's what he's sort of saying, that life is being projected onto the screen and we are interpreting interpreting what we see on the screen. So it's, he's, I think he's saying that we are creating it and receiving it in the same place. His next analogy explains exactly what he means. Well, he's, he's talking about the man sitting in a moving picture theatre. Shall I read them? I think it would be useful because it's a good analogy for, for the, the point that we're making here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the three paragraphs. Imagine a man sitting in the ordinary moving picture theatre. Imagine that he knows nothing of the construction of the cinematograph, nothing of the existence of the lantern behind his back, nor of the small transparent picture on the moving film. Let us imagine that he wants to study the cinematograph and begins to study that which proceeds on the screen, to make notes, to take pictures, to observe the order, to calculate the, to construct, hypothesize, and so forth. At what will he arrive? Evidently at nothing at all, unless he will turn his back to the screen and will begin to study the cause of the appearance of the pictures on the screen. The cause is confined in the lantern, i.e. in consciousness, and in the moving films of pictures, and in brackets, in the psyche. These it is necessary to study, desiring to understand the cinematograph. That's it. So that's it. Yeah, I think that's his point. It's a bit, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit rough, but I, I, you get the idea that we look at the world and imagine that the world around us is the cinema screen, and we are measuring what we see on that screen, and we're trying to make sense of the world. But actually, if we turned around and found that it was being projected by somebody else, and somebody had created those images, or something had created those images for us, for example, if you were sitting in the cinema. And what was on in front of you was Star Wars, and you based your 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 version of reality 
on what was going on in Star Wars, then you would have a very specific and very pointed view of what reality is. If you then turned around and said, oh, my God, somebody's made this film. Who is this George Lucas character? I need to find out what the hell he's trying to tell me. Then suddenly all of the measurements and things that you took on there are irrelevant unless you get the answers that you need from the guy who made the film that is being projected in front of you. So if you took that analogy and you thought about it a little bit, little bit beyond, say, say you turned around and you didn't, you could see beyond the third dimension into other dimensions. Do you think he's he's making the point that that what we see here is being created elsewhere, and we are just seeing? That's exactly the point that he's. That's exactly the point he's making. That there is some source. He, co- he uses the word cause. Which, which is great mm. because it doesn't put us into the realms of using terms like God or religion or anything else. But that term cause means there is something with purpose that's creating the images on the screen. And if you could tap into that, you could potentially know what's coming up on the screen. Well, because you are then creating your own reality and possibly the reality of other people who are um, not so aware as you. Which does bring us to, uh, to to kind of the edges of how manifesting works as well, isn't it? That's exactly where we are. That's exactly what it comes to, yeah. But, you know, that, um, and bear in mind that if you're, if you're consciously manifesting your reality and other people around you are not, you are at least in part creating their, a part of their reality for them. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at what's happening in front of you and you say, oh, well, that's, that's all I've got. It's, you know, like there's Star Wars on the screen. That's all there is. And, and that's, so, yeah, and that's what life actually is. Where do I get my lightsaber? Yes, and you've got to take the default. Whatever happens is what happens. But if you could turn around and say to George Lucas, do you know what, can you script me in? Because I'd yeah. like to have have that experience. I'd like to go for a ride in that uh Spacecraft. Yeah, and if you and if you could find the language that would speak to George Lucas, George Lucas would always be amenable to your suggestion and quite happy to let you have the part you want to play. Whether that's stormtrooper, whether that's savior, <laughs> whether that's whatever it is, whatever part you ask him to play, he'll make it yours. Oh, and by the way, if you don't like the the script that he's given you, at any time you can go back to George Lucas and say, "This isn't working out for me. Can I have?" this instead and George will go yeah fine that's what's happening <laughs> and that's, that's, what that's, that's the implication at. of the yeah what, what we've got to do and his question is is how do we even know what or who George Lucas is because at the moment even when we turn around all we've got is the magic lantern projecting the the images that's right we're, we're not we there's always a stage further back I think it's a good analogy yeah, I, I like his analogy. But the thing is, taking a little further from what you were saying, you could see the film, if you turned around, you'd see the film on the projector and you'd see the lantern putting the light through it. What if you said, well, hang on, I don't like this movie, but look, there's a whole stack of other, a stack of other reels movies. of film. So let me have a look through those. Oh, this one looks like a good one. I know now I just got to whack it on the uh, on the projector, shine the lamp and through it. Bingo, I've got a different film on the and screen. That, and, in, and in that sense, the projectionist is your own psyche. But literally, you are part of the process of creation then, because while you're not creating the images in the film canisters, you are choosing which of those canisters to project for yourself. 
Yes. Yes. And so that's something well, we, without using words or, or going into the discussion of what is psyche and what's consciousness, at that point, you're making a choice for yourself that you couldn't make when all you were doing was looking forward and all you thought existed was the images on the screen around you. I think in this conversation, we have gone, we have gone further than Aspensky. I mean, I don't, not saying I disagree with the concepts, but we've gone further than the, the, the concepts that Aspensky's actually put into this chapter because he hasn't talked about the projectionist. He hasn't talked about what is consciousness or where has it come from. He hasn't talked about who made the light or any of those other things. I mean, it's just sitting out there. I'm not saying it can't be discussed and I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but I don't think he actually discusses that in this process. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. He, he does mention it. I mean, he's the one. He is the one who says, at what will he arrive? Evidently nothing at all, unless he will turn his back to the screen and will begin to study the cause of the appearance of the pictures of the screen. The cause is confined in the lantern. And then he calls that yes. consciousness. I, I don't want to get into that, that discussion. But mm. when, you know, he's saying that we do have to then move away from the screen and then look at the cause. I, and that I totally agree with. I have, I have no issue with that at all. But if you go to the, if you start to see the, the lantern, the projector, you'll also notice that there has to be a projectionist. You, you can't, you can't not see that. That's and good. then you go back another step and say, well, who created the lantern? Who created the projectionist? And so, yeah, on. That's so it. it becomes yeah. really quite common. It. it opens a can of worms, an interesting can of worms and one I think well worth having a look at. I, yeah, yeah, we're not, I mean, I'm not trying to take us to down that path. I just want us to know that, you know, at that point, we start to become aware that there's not only is there one step beyond what we've experienced, but there is inevitably many, many, many steps and perhaps an infinite number of steps beyond. And at that point, we start a, a, a process of investigation if we choose to. But, you know, I, I yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that's all I, I want to say that but you know yeah and even if Aspensky doesn't talk about stuff in this chapter what he has done is he's he's turned some lights on for me especially yeah yeah and so so that's the whole point you know Hmm. you you read something you go well hang on a second you know if so facto bing 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 and that's that's where for me it's it's almost like this book lights up because he's putting points in that that make me uh join dots and so, yeah, he may not, and he will. He's he's got a lot of book left to go. So you know, he he's 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 posing the question. He then goes on to say that science um, only studies. So he says positive philosophy studies only the screen and the pictures passing upon it. For this reason, uh, for it remains the eternal enigma: where from are the pictures coming, and where are they going, and why are they coming and going instead of remaining eternally the same? But it is necessary to study the cinematograph, beginning with the lights, the source of light, i.e. the consciousness, then to pass on to the pictures on the moving film, and only after that to study the projected image. So he's he's kind of saying the way we look at things is around the wrong way. We're kind of trying to say backwards, but we need to we need to turn around and, and study from the source to the projection. You don't agree, Pete? No, no. I mean, I I I can understand that point of view because. But, but how can we ever do that? Um, because we are here having this, this experience in the world of the senses. We're always going to have the vision first of the senses before we, before we start wondering 
from whence do these um, images um, derive? Uh, yeah, no, I see what you're saying, but I, I think what he's saying is instead of studying the the uh, pictures and going... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Think? Instead of making our measurements, yeah, I agree with that, then, then we focus our... Yeah, now I get what you're saying. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm with that. Yeah, totally with that. Yeah, and there is no point in saying, oh, well, you know, something something's causing this, but there's no way of figuring that out. So I'm expecting Aspensky to give us more than just the, well, this is what you got to do. I'm expecting some hows and, and, you know, what, what needs to happen in order to be able to look around because that's an analogy. But here I'm sitting here and I'm experiencing the world and I want to, I want to be able to create a, a new reality, um, make things almost like Peter's analogy from many, many chapters ago with, you know, we're in the theme park and we can design our mm. own rides. Well, the majority of yeah. us are probably just getting on the rides that are already built. But if we want to create our own rides, uh, well, where uh, do we find the person to help us do that? So it's... Well, it's a, the ones who need it the most are the people that go to the theme park and are overwhelmed by it and, and end up not going on any of the rides and just sitting there wondering That's and worried. That's interesting too, yeah. Yeah, maybe if I go on that ride, it won't be the one I really wanted. Or that, or it all looks a bit scary, you know, and then I go introverted. I become the person that just sits in a room scared of the world. Yeah, they're the ones that go to the cafe and just have chips and, and a drink while they wait for their friends to have the rides. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and we are all different, but we can choose We can choose the rides. But anyway, let, let's, let, let's, let's get on with the chapter. I, I, just, I was just going to say... There are times in our life where we get on the rides and there are times in life when we go to the cafe. And um, Yeah, that's so right. The, that's good. Yeah, you know, it's not all or one. But the beauty of something like this book is it opens up your mind to say, I can get on a ride. I can I can make my own ride. I can do more. And uh, I think that's of great value. I think so. I think so. So he, he goes on. So I think he's, he's now starting to say, well, how do we do this? And he's starting out by saying, well, Perhaps it's our consciousness. We would like to see the entirety of what's available, but it's our consciousness that's limiting us because it's it's taking what our five senses deliver to it. And so we are seeing only a portion of what's available because of this concept of time. He's bringing this in. It's like we are, instead of seeing the entirety of everything that's available, we are chunking it down into small portions and looking at them one piece at a time and that looks to us like things are happening in time. That's my interpretation, but I will read to you what he says. It may be that our consciousness, not being able to embrace these things with the aid of the organs of sense and to represent them to itself in their entirety just as they are and grasping only the separate moments of its contact with them is constructing the illusion of motion and conceives that something is moving outside of it, of consciousness, i.e. that the things are themselves moving. If such is the case, then motion must be a reality of something only derived arising in our intellect during its contact with things which it does not grasp in their totality. And he then goes on to talk about, is he bringing back this concept of the, the city, which I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% with, but I, I, what I'm seeing from his point is that if we just bring back the other analogy to cinematograph, we turn around and see the light, maybe it's too overwhelming to do that. And so we're just chunking down, looking at the film. The film is chunking these things down for us. 
on the screen and that's how we we can easily digest it but looking at at the light and looking at all the different films that are available perhaps it's uh, it's too much for our consciousness to grasp so we would have to expand our consciousness to be able to see to be able to process things happening at the same time rather than chunking them down maybe maybe that's where he's coming from but i'm going to leave it to you guys to i just wonder when when we say expand our consciousness i don't know exactly what you're saying here but if consciousness is the light my question is is it not always much more complete it's the question of how much we can reflect back comes out through our senses and what can we get back how far can we get back into consciousness which is complete how much more can we see of it because I don't know, we talk, often talk about raising our consciousness, but is it something that's much more complete than we even think about in the first place? Is, is consciousness, is it raising our consciousness or is it becoming more aware of the, the consciousness that we actually have? If I could hijack your analogy of long ago, Pete, with the theme park, and I'm going to extrapolate it. So if you come into the theme park, there you are, you see ride A, you know, the, the whizzy busy and then you get to the next one which might be the merry-go-round but you're seeing one ride at a time but when you get up on the ferris wheel you can see all the rides and you can go well i think i'm going to do that ride i'm going to think i'm going or and you know and the one after that is over there so you can see where you want to go in the theme park to get the rides that you want but if you're down on the ground you're only kind of as you walk around and it so it looks like you're seeing ride a and it's kind of in time of this that one i've been on it's in the past and now we're on this one it's in the present and when look at that one down the down the alleyway i can see coming in that's the next one but it's really they're all together they're all there and you can choose where you go once you see where what's available yeah but you've got to get on the ferris wheel first you've got to make that choice you've got to get on the ferris wheel first and so that's what i'm saying well most what most people do is they get on the the tiny little merry-go-round that goes ever so slowly and that we would normally associate with toddlers, all smiling and happy. And they find that that's a comfort zone and they don't get off that. And that's their nine-to-five life, their, their unhappy existence. And they, they somehow know there's something else because every time that, that that little merry-go-round goes around, they see other people. And other people seem to be wild with excitement and they're doing this and we know not what, we don't know how they get that feeling, or, uh, but we don't get off the merry-go-round because this is comfortable, this, this, this is comfortable, and it's not scary, and, and, it's, and it's what we're used to. What you'll find in the amusement park of this world is that there are a billion little merry-go-rounds for every one, woohoo, flash up and down ride, for every space mountain. But you have to get off the merry-go-round to find the, that that woohoo ride, and that's the equivalent. Isn't that isn't and isn't that to to mix our analogies? Isn't that the equivalent of suddenly getting that spark of inspiration to turn around and realise there's a projector behind you? Yes, you've got to. We have a a spark that says, you know what, I'm going to try something else because that might be better. I like that. I like that a lot because it takes courage to get off the merry-go-round and go and take a scary ride. Uh, it takes courage to even explore what else is available, and that would be getting onto the Ferris into the Ferris wheel to actually say yeah. there must be something more, and I'm going to go looking for it. And and from the Ferris wheel, I can see everything. I'm gonna I could try this, I can try that until I find the one that's right for me. 
And the one that's right for me might be trying all these things, spending my whole life experiencing them all. You might even be able to see other rides from from the merry-go-round. Or look, there's the you know, the the whizzy jig or whatever, and you can see people on it. But you think, oh no, if I did that, I might lose my horse on the merry-go-round. Someone else might come and take right. that horse. I might lose everything. That's that's what I meant by it. Yeah, and, then, and so you, your consciousness is is limited to experiencing just what's in front of you, and not not even um, willing to step out from that, just just to use that theme park analogy. Let's move on. Okay, so then he says we return to the question, what he's returning to is what is the world and what is consciousness? He said if the world is a great something possessing the consciousness of itself, so are we rays of that consciousness, self-consciousness, but unconscious of the whole. And he's moving he's moving from this concept of, there is something, but we're only experiencing some of it, and we're unconscious of the whole, the whole of it. Mm. I, I, I like that idea because I think that describes us. Yeah, because we don't know what we don't know for a start. No, but we can be aware that there is something that we don't know, but we know not what that is. And we do, we do, well, I do anyway, know that there is something outside of... Yeah. What I'm, I can feel something bigger. I, I can feel yeah. something yeah, yeah, yeah. out there that bigger and whatever it is, but I couldn't tell you what it is necessarily. Okay, if I, was, if I were uh, walking along a, a path in a, on a mountain and I'd gone round and round the mountain several times, I'd gone round several bends, I would know that the next bend that's coming up, there is something around that corner. I don't know what it is yet till I get there, but there's something, and, and, and it's that. I can then choose, do I, want to, do I want to carry on down the path and find out, or shall I stay here where I am, where the view seems to be quite comfortable? You know, we, we can be aware that there's something. We don't have to know what that is. And then we have a choice. Do we go and seek it out, or do we not? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he's saying. We, we are unconscious of the whole. You can validly choose not to go exploring it, even though you feel that you are aware that there is this bigger thing out there. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do have this idea that there is something, but then they continue on with their ordinary life and they do nothing about it. They're content that they've made the step to understanding that there's something else, and that's as far as they want to go now. Plenty of those. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, he then takes this a little further to what is the Mm -hmm. phenomenon of life, which I think is the the link here. Um, He says, if if there be no motion, if it be an illusion, then we must search further. Whence could this illusion have arisen? The phenomena of life, and he's talking biological phenomena, uh, much resemble the transition through our space of certain four-dimensional circles, the circles being extremely complicated, every one consisting of a great number of interlaced lines. The life of a man or of any other living being suggests a complicated circle. It begins always at one point birth and ends always at one point death. We have complete justification for supposing that it is one and the same point. Uh, I know there's going to be taking issue with that sentence. The circles are large and small. They begin and end uh, similarly. and They end at the same point where they begin. And the point of non-existence from the psychobiological standpoint or some existence other than psychological one. Look, I, 
I think that is interesting in 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 not not even thinking it is a circle because I think Pete, we were discussing this before. You were saying it could very well be a spiral, which makes more sense to me. But it is saying that it is something intersecting with this third dimension that, that has a start and finish. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's talking to it from the point of view of life as we previously understood it. You know, you have this beginning, it comes from nothing, and then you have this ending where you go back to nothing. What it doesn't take, what that never takes account of is the experience that you've had in between. Um, so that what dies is not the same as what was what was born. He, so he's literally just talking about the, the points and he's, he's talking about something. He's, in, he's actually implying that life is nihilistic. In other words, it, it's first of all catabolic so that it builds up and then, I mean, anabolic and then it, uh, as it builds up and then catabolic as it goes down. And then it's nothing other than a nihilistic experience where we're, we're going to go. Why would you choose to have any experience at all in that lifetime? If if all you thought was that you were going, you came from nothing and you were going back to nothing, and I think this is the point that he makes, um, and that he's only looking at it now from the from the the standard model of the positivists, and he's going to refute that. He is going to absolutely refute that. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I know that he does. In in a chapter beyond chapter ten, <laughs> Alice, I'm going to make a suggestion because. If- it's, we're only halfway through this chapter. Is it worthwhile doing this in two parts and coming back and doing the rest of this chapter uh, as our next next podcast? It's really interesting, and it, and I, you know, and I and maybe we should give it that extra bit of time. I don't, I don't mind that if if you don't. Yeah, I think you're right because what what is coming to is yeah, you know, we're really starting to look at what is life and what is beyond yeah. <laughs> our experiences and. And it probably takes more than 10 minutes. I think yes, it does. Yes, And, and you know, I, this, is a big, this is a fabulous chapter. It has so it, many yeah. exciting concepts in it, doesn't it? You know, and uh, yeah. things that, that uh, we really, we know that he's been building up to, and it's the start of them. There may be statements that may or may not be fully justified or fully explained, but they are going to catapult into further chapters. And it would be nice to get our footing in our basis. On this chapter, firmly established. Yeah, I do. I, I think that, that, that's a good that's a, a good idea to to give it a, a whirl later on because we don't want to go speeding through this. No. All right. Well, that's that's it. So stay tuned for part two of chapter ten, which we will then start looking at Spensky's view on what is life. What is the phenomena of life itself? Dun, 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 dun. So thanks, guys, for the first half of this chapter. I've, I've really enjoyed yet again uh, hearing your thoughts and having, uh, you know, giving Spensky a bit of a run for his money, but but still, you know, I, I still really enjoy what he has to say and I really enjoy what he's had to say in this chapter. So uh, we look forward to everyone joining us for the second part of Chapter 10 in the next podcast. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Alice. I think we're in the queue for the Ferris wheel. Ha, <laughs> <Yeah>, indeed. <we> <laughs> <laughs>